0: Filmmaking is what you do with the footage, um, and how one image precedes the other, and one follows, and what piece of sound is being heard. Uh, it really that's that's what it is. The editing is the filmmaking itself, and so I've always been involved with the editing from the very very beginning. And it had to be it just felt. Sometimes we couldn't really express it in words. Just felt more comfortable, or felt that it flowed better visually, or mood and tone. And I, I, I something I can't I can't define, but it. it nerve-wracking, and it's anxiety-producing, but it's what we like to do. Full-on post-production of The Last Waltz took place over an 18-month period from the winter of 1977 through the spring of 1978. It was a monstrous undertaking, with many moving pieces— Martin Scorsese was juggling multiple projects, leading to the post-production process taking longer than normal. Robbie Robertson was almost exclusively working on the film's soundtrack that was to be released alongside the film. With such a large undertaking, Scorsese hired two editors to assist with reviewing the footage and constructing the film. The two credited editors were Jan Robley and Yu Yi. Robley is credited with editing only one other film, Beatlemania, in 1981, and Yu Bun Yi has been credited on the 70s Woodstock film, Beatlemania, and Elvis on Tour, from 1972, as well as the documentary The Californians, from 1984. Little is known about either editor, and most of their film work seems to end in the 80s, odd given they were part of one of the largest, most technically ambitious music documentaries of all time, and had such a huge part in its success over the next 18 months everyone who worked on post-production became entwined perhaps a little too much scorsese was heavily into cocaine and was driving his friends away and sleeping with multiple women he had a one-night stand with Yee's girlfriend who according to peter biskin's book easy riders raging bulls quote looked like a model scorsese later thought Yee would come in the night and kill him however This didn't seem to derail their relationship, and Yee, alongside Rob Lee, played a key role in post-production. And while Scorsese was driving those close to him away, he was taking up even closer with Robbie Robertson. Robbie, who was also consuming large amounts of cocaine and committing debauchery, was thrown out by his wife Dominique. Without a place to go... His bandmates, once brothers, not overly thrilled to be in his presence after a rather raw and emotional process of shooting the film, found themselves roommates with Martin Scorsese. The two preferred working during the night, ravished by cocaine, bouncing off the walls. The pair watched television during the day and worked in the evening with the windows blacked out. Apparently, it was so dank within Martin Scorsese's Mulholland Drive mansion, they had an air filtration system installed to aid with better air quality. And despite their debilitation and relationship drama, the picture was edited and completed. And while Scorsese is often credited with crafting one of the finest documentaries of all time, full praise should be given to the crew who worked tirelessly on the film. For example, now one of the most crucial parts of the movie, beginning with Don't Do It, the last song from the actual concert was a suggestion by Robley, setting forth the whole flashback nature of the movie. Editing was no doubt an arduous process, hundreds of hours of footage, and various creative and narrative choices needed to be made. The film involved cutting together multiple cameras of the best captured performances, but what would that footage be without the sound, especially in this case? That was even more complicated, involved not just editing the audio, but also a soundtrack that was to be released as a triple album. It was further made complicated by the fact that several hours of overdubbing of instrumentation and vocals needed to be completed as well as mixed and mastered. Rob Verbroni, who engineered The Last Waltz, later said, It was a lot of work to finish the film. There was about 18 months of post-production. It was grueling. Four studios were going at a time because Robbie was working on the studio side of the record. Marty was editing New York, New York and going through personal struggles with his family. There was a lot going on and I really had to get involved to try to get this thing on track. For additional context, the recording of the concert was supervised by Elliot Mazer. Maser had worked with the band previously and had known them via Albert Grossman and Woodstock. He had helped with music from Big Pink during the mastering period and during the setup of the studio for the Brown album. He also took part in the recording of their live shows at Wembley Stadium in 1974. Robbie and Rick contacted Mazur after hearing his work on Neil Young's Time Fades Away and asked him to come and work on The Last Waltz. For the event itself, Mazur remembers, Rob Fabroni mixed the house sound at the gig. John Simon did many of the arrangements, conducting various parts of the show and was very much involved with the rehearsals. Ray Thompson, one of the greatest live engineers, set up the piano sound and the house mics for the show. He could not be there for the actual show, but he was very helpful. With that, Mazur was responsible for the concert recording itself. Every aspect was planned, though things did go awry. Mazur remembers, quote, Paul Butterfield walked out to the wrong mic, Robbie broke a string, and one of Marty's lighting rigs went down. Regardless, the real challenge was recording everything well. Mazer completed his work on a 24-track recording console with Dolby Noise Reduction System, and recorded on 2-inch tapes. He had two machines running on an overlap, to ensure they captured everything and had a backup. They did experience issues as the power dipped so low that on a few tracks, Mazer experienced a hum. This was caused by the Dolby units not being connected to the same power source as the machines and console. Mazer and co chose to mic using Bayer ribbon models for vocals. And he noted that the band had great mic technique, and these mics had a good off-axis response, which allowed for a lot of jumping around. The singers didn't have to eat the mic. They did some trickery to the stands to help with the filming as well. For example, they painted the stands black for the drums and other instruments so they would be obscured in the camera, and did not mic overhead, rather using miking under the cymbals facing up. Mazur routed all this through inputs on an API hider board and a Neve BCM 10 over 2 for additional inputs. He mixed the drums into four tracks and everything else was isolated. No compressors, no gates, and generous EQ. Regardless of Maser's great technique, when he delivered the audio, there was plenty of work to do. A major factor in post-production that made a huge difference was the amount of overdubbing that was required. It was needed for a few reasons. One, there were some issues with the audio captured at the event proper. A buzz from Garth Hudson's organ made his audio impractical. Two, Danko needed to overdub some of the out-of-tune bass guitar. Three, Robertson nearly overdubbed his entire set of guitar solos. And four, vocal punch-ins were needed for Danko and Manuel. In most instances with audio, it was easy enough to punch in or dub, but the complexity of having to painstakingly match it to the film made the task mammoth remember Levon helm was not really thrilled with the live show let alone additional shooting at mgm and did not partake in any overdubbing in the studio later he refused to be part of that process and honestly he was pitch perfect and played excellently so it wasn't needed in order to move the process along multiple studios were used as mentioned and people worked simultaneously Fabroni later said, I had a studio in my Malibu house and I had started to work with an engineer on a live mix of the record. Then I would leave and stop at Gordy Hormel's house, which had a studio and Garth Hudson was doing his organ stuff there. From there, I would go to the village recording studio where Robbie was working on the studio side of the record. Then I would go to Goldwyn Studios where we were doing the pre-dub. And every day I made that trip and it was pretty intense. Talking specifically about the film, this was the most foreign aspect for the band. As mentioned, the process of matching the dubs to the film was cumbersome. It didn't help that they were using new technology. Much like pushing the boundaries with the film medium by being the first to use 35 mm for a concert film, they were also using new tools in audio post-production. Steve Maslow was involved as a re-recording mixer. He's responsible for mixing the recorded dialogue, sound effects, and music to create the final version of the soundtrack for the feature film. He remembers, everything was pretty much state of the art for the time. They brought in a 24 track, and initially they wanted to do something that hadn't been done much then. It might've been one of the first movies to do it, which was to interlock the multi-tracks to the film chain. It was quite cumbersome at the time. I can't remember what they used, some sort of film sync lock device, and it took at least 20 feet for the film chain to lock up. It was pretty frustrating. Maslow, alongside Fabroni, spent nearly two months just getting premixes moving everything from 16-track board recordings to the film. That didn't even include production dialogue from the interviews and other segments, which took even more time. Maslow later recounted that, The length of the mix was the longest I'd ever been on. It was six months of grueling process in which the only time off was Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's Day. To further exemplify why it was so difficult, not only were they matching new dubs, but mixing from the live board sounds that were captured during the event. Maslow later remembers, I had to switch from the overdub bass to the production bass and make it sound seamless, which wasn't easy because it had a slightly different quality to it. And while the band was eager to make everything perfect, Martin Scorsese was also quite the taskmaster with what he wanted sound-wise from the film as the director. Remember, as a filmmaker, Scorsese was trying to make something that the audience would enjoy. At the time, concert films were considered a snooze fest. Why go into a smoke-filled, stuffy theater to watch a concert when you could experience it for real? Scorsese was acutely aware of this and continued to push new ground. To match all the camera moves, Scorsese wanted the sound to reflect the movement on screen, creating a more immersive experience. For example, there is a sequence in which the camera is moving stage left to stage right in a sweep. Maslow would pan the instrumentation and vocals with the moving camera. He later stated that he had never done that with a concert film before, adding another layer of complexity and challenge to the project. It's also important to put into context that it was also primitive at this time. Remember, this predates heavy computer use, automation, and AI capabilities we have today to make that process easier. It was manual and required upwards to five or six technicians at a time to complete. The four studios, various production members, engineers and musicians raced against the clock to complete every component of the film. At the time, soundtracks were released up to several months ahead of time, but not the last waltz. It was released only two weeks ahead of the film, unheard of during the period. But it didn't matter, though. Robertson and Co. needed the time to ensure perfection of their work, and it paid off. Interestingly, with the release of the album in 1978, opinions actually were varied. Remember, the band had quote-unquote broken up almost two years previous. That is how long it took to complete the triple album and film. People had moved on. The late 70s exploded with commercialized rock music from The Eagles to Led Zeppelin. Jim Miller of Rolling Stone states in his review, As an album, it attempts to do rock in the 60s generally, and the band specifically, what the band did for American ethos, to fix a place for the past by showing its importance to the present. Perhaps the 60s are still too near, but the effects of The Last Waltz are not always gratifying. And Miller was not just thrilled with the concert components, but the additional Last Waltz suite was savaged as well. Quote, On Out of the Blue, Robertson proves himself a wobbly singer. But the worst is yet to come, a remake of The Wait, taken at a jaunty clip and drained of the brooding presence that possessed the original version. This time out, even an emblematic chorus by Mavis Staples doesn't really help. And Miller put the dagger into the heart with the line, there is little here that demands a second hearing. Most of it we heard before, done better. And the infamous Robert Christow, who had been lukewarm on the band's career, was more positive of the album, however. Bet this ages a lot better than Woodstock, in a way it already has. And Rob Bauman states, This was the gig of the band's life and one of the greatest in rock history. We are privileged that it exists in a form where we can hear it as often as we want. And on the other side of the coin, up until the very last minute, The Last Waltz had issues outside of post-production that Scorsese had to deal with. The body that was responsible for ratings, the MPAA, wanted to give the movie an R rating and requested several swear words to be cut out in order for it to reach the rating of PG. According to the Detroit Free Press in April of 1978, Scorsese was only willing to cut one swear word. Despite the back and forth, the filmmaker got his desired PG rating, allowing the film to be marketed to a wider demographic. As Jonathan Taplin, the producer of The Last Waltz and friend of the band remembers, when we finally had the cut of The Last Waltz ready, we decided to have a screening for our friends and the United Artists brass at the Cary Grant Theater on the MGM lot. Levon remembers it being pure agony. Quote, for two hours we watched as the camera focused almost exclusively on Robbie Robertson long and loving close-ups of his heavily made-up face and expensive haircut. The film was edited so it looked like Robbie was conducting the band, with expansive waves of his guitar neck. The muscles on his neck stood out like chords when he sang so powerfully into his switched-off microphone. Matters weren't helped as Helm had brought along Ronnie Hawkins with him to the screening. Hawkins, a known shit-disturber, chuckled and nudged Levon during the film and supposedly said, quote, Was Richard still in the group when we did this? Helm was angry at how little Manuel appeared in the film and how poorly represented the whole band were. As the film faded to black, Helm recalls silence in the screening room. I was in shock over how bad the movie was. Nine cameras on the floor and there wasn't even a shot of Richard Manuel singing the finale, I Shall Be Released, his trademark song. And while there was uncertainty from Helm and the rest of the band regarding The Last Waltz, the film premiered only days later, nearly two years after the concert itself. The Last Waltz made its premiere at the New York Zigfield Theater on April 26, 1978. Thus starting a several months media blitz that took Martin Scorsese and Robbie Robertson across the globe, the rest of the group found little interest or were busy with their sole efforts to take part, and reviews from New York post-premiere varied. Robert Hilburn wrote in April of 1978 for the Los Angeles Times that The Last Waltz was a revelation. 26-song look at the final appearance by the band, America's most distinguished rock group. And noted film critic Pauline Kael said for The New Yorker that The Last Waltz is a real movie. It's even tempered intensely satisfying. Over in Atlanta for the Atlanta Constitution, writer Steve Daughtry said band cultists will find the rocking roadhouse poets in peak form. And the Weekend Magazine published a lengthy story and review of The Last Waltz with mixed appraisal. The transitions from concert footage to some band performances shot on a Hollywood downstage are particularly abrupt. And Janet Maslin for The New York Times was perhaps the most scathing. Quote, The film tries to milk too much from every last sign of wear and tear. It comes dangerously close to self importance and self pity. Further adding comments on the guest list, A guest appearance by the very Las Vegas' Neil Diamond, one of whose albums was recently produced by the band's leader, Robbie Robertson, is so jarring and unwelcome that the movie takes minutes to recover. And Maslin puts the dagger in it with one of the final lines in her review. There is a dazzling array of talent on display here, and the film surely has its memorable moments, but it articulates so little of the end-of-an-era feeling it hints at. The studio also reported that the film earned a promising box office gross of $65,000 in its first week of release at the Ziegfeld. The budget was cited at between $1.5 and $2 million, and an April 17, 1978 DV article, which also included information that the band Scorsese and the guests did not receive money up front, but had negotiated participation in any profits. Following the world premiere at New York's Ziegfeld Theater, the film was presented at a midnight screening at the Cannes Film Festival in the south of France on May 27th, 1978. Gorsese's addiction was becoming so poor that during this time at the Cannes Film Festival, while premiering the film, he couldn't score his cocaine. He said without his drug, he couldn't do interviews, and his team had to dispatch a private plane to Paris to bring back more coke. He later said in Biskin's Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, it hit me finally when I was watching the end credits crawl of the last waltz at the Cinerama Dome that I didn't enjoy it anymore. There was nothing left. It was like rock bottom. And while Scorsese was struggling, Robertson seemed to be basking in the success of the film's American release. It was later reported in the Sydney Morning Herald that Robertson had used the last waltz to attach himself to famed director John Huston houston who had directed some of hollywood's most enduring features like the maltese falcon african queen and *Prizzy's honor was supposedly optioning rights for the night they drove old dixie down turning the classic song into a film and as robertson continued his press blitz finding himself in australia canada and japan promoting the work he had now committed over three years of his life to ironically that took him on the road it kept him burning the candle at both ends, something he vowed he would stop. Nonetheless, the rest of the band had a moment of soul-searching and refocusing. They still technically needed to deliver their last album for Capitol Records. They had begun work on the record in earnest in 1976 during the Last Waltz Blitz. It was a time to wrap it up, and with the relationship in flux and the uncertainty surrounding the group, once-communal effort was no more. Danko and Helm in particular were fast-tracked onto solo works, especially Danko who quickly released his first solo outing with Arista Records and went on tour. Helm was quick too, but it was a whirlwind for him. He remembers, quote, "...the period after the last waltz was a time of real scrambling for me. I was determined to get out to the next thing, fearful of being left behind in a competitive business." And he later mused that this period would become the defining moment of his career. Now, The Last Waltz is an imperfect masterpiece, but it was a defining moment of their careers, whether or not they knew it at the time or wanted it to be. Forever on celluloid, one of the most important acts of the 60s and 70s was immortalized, surrounded by their peers. Remember, the band occupied such a massive space in the minds of the most influential musicians, from the British contingent of The Beatles, The Rolling Stones, and Eric Clapton, to the new and Southern California sounds of David Crosby, The Eagles, and Linda Ronstadt in any adjacent scene of the time. Now, 40 to 50 years later, every American Thanksgiving, people put on the film and see those words, this film should be played loud, and Marvel as the band takes the stage and launches into hours of bliss. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the band history. I think this is finally the last episode on the last waltz. You know, it's funny going to the postscripts, uh, this section, uh, as I call it, of the show. I think I originally said when I put out the first last waltz episode, it was going to be a three-parter, but it doubled. I'm like George Lucas with the Star Wars films, but it was worth it because there's a lot of stuff that we already know about the last waltz. You know, it's probably, well, it's not probably. It is the most important document in the band's history Uh, and we hear the same stories we know about uh, you know the coke bubble on Neil Young's nose or you know Martin Scorsese putting together some crazy shot list for the movie or that there was only one camera in muddy waters or you know all these kind of things that that's known but I really wanted to try to dig into the production of it whether it was the pre-production and all of the work they did at Winterland to make it equipped to do the film, how it started with just a concert and Bill Graham to expanding to Martin Scorsese, and how they made it an album and made a deal with Warner Brothers and United Artists, and then they filmed on a soundstage at MGM, and all of the amazing people that were involved in the post-production, from the editing to the post sound, which is fundamentally the most important part of this entire thing. The lasting thing here is the sound and and the recording of the last waltz and all of the dubbing and all of the technology that they created. You know, this was at a period that only a few other people were really pushing, uh, stuff. George Lucas, who I mentioned early with star Wars there, uh, and in Spielberg as well you know these were the only two guys pushing stuff in the movie world at that time technologically uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind did some of the audio stuff that we mentioned here as well as did Star Wars um, so that's you know one of the reasons why I wanted to do this and uh, as a testament to the Last Waltz and all the great people I think hopefully covered most of it in these six episodes there's of course plenty more you could dive into but in the, you know, sake of just keeping it going and completing this and moving on, um, I tried to jam as much as I could in. So I really hope you enjoyed it. Um, Outside of that, uh, if you're interested in following us online, you you can do that. We're on social media. Um, We put a lot of great content out there. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok at The Band Podcast. Um, TikTok's really blowing up. It's doing well. Um, you can also go over to the bandpodcast.com and check out the blogs that we're doing there. I've been writing a lot more uh, outside of just the episodes, which has probably slowed the episodes down in all honesty. But uh, I just put out a piece on Robbie Robertson and Richard Manuel's underrated songwriting partnership. Uh, I really want to highlight that. Those are some of the things that when you're trying to do the podcast here and tell a very linear kind of story of the history of the group you don't really get to dig into this is a concise you know 3,000 words that takes a look at the entirety of their careers as a songwriting duo so make sure you go check that out at the bandpodcast.com. also if you're interested in supporting the show you can do that um, we have a lot of great Patreon supporters who donate every month and help make this show a possibility so you can do that by going to patreon.com slash the band of history Uh, you can also find those links anywhere online if you type in the band podcast or the band of history there's different tiers and you can get early access to a lot of the great written content I do uh, from the archive stuff lots of great video and other commentary and rankings and all that Uh, and I want to give you guys early access to all the episodes and everything as well so make sure you go and check that out Uh, that would be greatly appreciated I also want to give a special shout out to some of the people that you don't hear about that work on the show. My good friend Mike here, he's been editing the last few, and I want to say thank you, a big thank you, because the the show is a pretty big undertaking. Um, there's been people that have helped me out along the way, uh, and I'm forever thankful for that. Editing is a very time-consuming part, and I was honestly getting pretty overwhelmed with it. And Mike jumped in and he's doing a hell of a lot better job than I ever would. So big shout out to you, Mike. Thanks. And you're probably hearing this right now. I also want to talk about the sponsor for this show. Um, I don't usually do sponsored segments, but this one is significant and I think it would help a lot of people. Uh, This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. I agreed to talk about BetterHelp because I truly believe if a resource like this was around uh, during the band's period... Um, a lot less pain and suffering would have occurred. The good news is therapy works. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggle and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help better help is customized online therapy that offers video phone and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't even have to go see anybody or be on camera if you don't want to. It's more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. And a special offer to The Band of History listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com theband the band. That's betterhelp.com theband the band. Thank you again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. So that's all I really have to say. Uh, thank you for enjoying my ramblings, and I have really hope that you've enjoyed the podcast thus far. Uh, we've been getting a lot of great feedback online. I really appreciate everybody taking the time to listen. You know, there's a lot of podcasts out there, plenty more to come as we dig into islands. Technically, islands came out before the last waltz, but I had to finish the last waltz first. So we'll go back and talk about islands before we dive into stuff that I'm really interested in, too, as well as... Rick Danko's solo career and Levon Helm's solo career in the late 70s they're putting out some amazing work as well as you know we're going to talk about Robbie Gartham and Richard as well don't worry and we're going to continue on until the eventual breakup of the band um, with the death of Rick Danko in 1999 and who knows uh, with such great work especially Levon put out in the 2000s and 2010s Grammy award winning work we might just go might just keep on going, but I don't know yet. But uh, I digress. Thank you again for listening to The Bandit History, and we'll catch you at the next one.